1 Samuel chapter 25 is where we're going to land today. We started a series five weeks ago. We called it My Story. And the idea behind it is we've got to unpack our stories. If we're going to live out this abundant life that Jesus promised, we've got to figure out who we are. We've got to unpack my story. And we said that even though all of our stories in here have different adventures and different failures and successes, tragedies and sadnesses and happinesses, while those might be different, we all have same common pieces to our story. Matter of fact, we said we can talk about those by talking about the life of a character in the Bible, a guy named David, because David's story has those same common things that all of our stories do. And we landed on two things. We said our story is this. We were chosen by God. Remember the second one? Oh, my heart hurts inside, and I'm going to cry a little. That's okay. I love you so much for a purpose. Now you remember, like, oh, yeah, that's... That's right, that's what I was going to say, but I don't want to talk out loud. We're chosen by God for a purpose. And then the last three weeks of the series, we've said we just want to figure out how do we live that out. How do we live out that reality of being chosen by God for a purpose? And so three weeks ago, we said the first thing is that we've got to just develop this God-sized imagination. We looked at the story where David fought this Goliath named Giant. We said we can't have our imaginations captured by the Goliaths or the Giants in our lives. Like we've got to capture our imagination, set our imaginations on a God who can do far more than we could even imagine. And that's the beginning of living out this story. Last week we said it's vital that we see others the way Jesus sees them. We don't look at people the way that maybe David's guys was looking at King Saul, saying this is the opportunity to kill. We've got to look at people the way Jesus looks at them. Sometimes that's easier for some people, and sometimes that's harder, depending on the person, right? And so we said it's vital that we look at others through Jesus' eyes. We look at others the way that Jesus looks at them. Today, last one, we want to land on one more key element to living out our story. We're going to find it in 1 Samuel 25. Now, I just flipped up an image here, and you think you know where we're going with this story. If you know David's story a little bit, you're like, I know what story we're going to, and I bet you don't. I don't think most of us know this event, because it doesn't really play well as a veggie tale video, or a flannel graph, or a cute Sunday school story. Or, it's not even a story you're probably going to tell your kids at bedtime at night, because it's, it's just well, you'll see, it's just just. It's just just. First Samuel chapter 25, starting in verse 2. It says, A certain man in Moan, uh, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. And he had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, uh, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. So we're introduced to two of the three main characters of the story right out the chute, right? We've got this guy named Nabal and this gal named Abigail. And it describes them. And if you got the description, it describes them as polar opposites, right? It says that she is intelligent and beautiful, and he is surly and mean in his dealings. The language there is interesting. It means uh, this with, with Nabal being surly could be translated hard or severe or stubborn or obstinate. He's that kind of guy. It says he's mean in his dealings. Literally means he behaved badly. Um, the, the, the most literal translation would be the word evil. Nabal was an evil guy. We might use words like disagreeable, wicked, unhappy, misery, unpleasant, worse than. And he's married to a gal named Abigail who is described as intelligent and beautiful. Intelligent, we might use words like prudent, pleasant, agreeable, better than, glad, happy, kind. And the word beautiful, 
This means attractive. She was this beautiful, intelligent woman married to this mean, surly guy. It's the kind of couple that when, when they went into parties or they were around other people, other people were like, how did they ever get together? Like, what, what did she see in him? The guy is a loser. Or, or how did he ever win her? Like, what did he do that made her go, okay, I'll marry you? So it's just this very strange polar opposite. Important that we see that from the get-go. Verse 4. It says, when David, who's the third character in our story, by the way, when David was in the wilderness, uh, he heard that Nabal was sharing sheep. And so he sent ten young men, and he said to them, hey, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name, and say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that's yours. Now I hear that at sheep shear in time, And when your shepherds were with us, we didn't mistreat them. The whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal the message in David's name and then they waited. So they show up during this time of sheep shearing. Sheep shearing is apparently a big deal back in the day. It's like the time that all the work that you've put into these stupid sheep by feeding them and caring for them and bathing them and all those things, protecting them, like it's going to pay off. They got some wool, they're going to sell it. Uh, it's like those investments that just been, been collecting and collecting and you're going to finally cash them in. So Nabal's going to like add to his incredible wealth and he's excited. And sheep shearing time back then was time to throw a party. You would throw a party and you'd invite everybody that was part of the process. Helping those sheep, caring for those sheep, feeding those sheep, the guy that gave you grain. Well, whoever it was, you'd invite all those people and they'd be part of the party. And so David's men for this season have, have acted as protectors for Nabal's flock. Because David and his mighty men, these, these 400 warriors or whatever, are kind of in this area. All the bandits, all the bad guys, all the evil guys, the thieves, they're like, yeah, we're not, we're not messing with Nabal's stuff. Because David and his guys are there and they're, they're bananas. You know, we're not, we're not getting in that. So David has really acted as protector for them. And so David's thinking, this is great. Maybe we can get some fresh meat, get some supplies. We've been living off of, I don't even know, onions and vegetables for a while, whatever. So, so great. I'm going to send some guys down. Hey, whatever you got, we're happy to have. So he sends some guys down, and, and they give this message, and um, there you go. It wasn't necessarily the law of the land, but it was a lot like our culture, uh, tipping your wait staff. You go to a restaurant, waiter, waitress waits on you, serves food, they do a good job, and you just decide, eh, I'm not going to tip them. Like the other people in your group would look at you like something's wrong, right? They'd be like, what's wrong? That's, that's, not, that's not right. You can't do that. A lot like that. Verse 10, the guys are waiting there for a response, anticipating filling their sacks with some good food. It says, Nabal answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who's the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? That's a dangerous statement, right? Right? Nabal's like, who are you? He questions David's character, questions David's motives. Says, oh, there's lots of guys who are breaking away from masters these days. Who are you? You're nothing. Who are you? You're like a nobody. Questions his motives, questions his guy's motives. Like, to a man, somebody's in your face questioning your motives. Like, what's your response? Just hang on to that for a second. Verse 12. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each one of you grab your sword. 
So they did, and they strapped on, he strapped on his as well. And about 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Guys, are we on the same page with this? Like, like these, these servants get back, David's men get back, and, and they tell David what Nabal said, and David says, grab a gun, we're going. Right, get your sword, we're going to take care of this. He wants to disrespect me, I'll show him. I'll, I'll show him who David is. Right? Straps on his sword, takes 400 guys. Last week we looked at a story with Saul and how Saul was chasing David and how Saul had 3,000 trained soldiers all trying to get David. And we said that was overkill. We said Saul was so insane with rage and jealousy and anger and just, just in his own brain that that was just a, like, it was a sign of his insanity. This is David taking 400 guys to go after one insulting idiot. That's overkill, right? David is enraged. He's angry. It's, it's, it, this is like shock and awe to the nth degree, right? David takes his guys, his strap on a sword. We'll, we'll, we'll show Nabal what's up if we need to. Verse 14. It says, one of the servants told Abigail, that's the beautiful, intelligent one, right? Says, so they told Abigail, Nabal's wife, hey, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greeting, but he hurled insults at him. These men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us the whole time they were out in the fields near them and nothing was ever missing. Night and day, they were like a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over, Abigail, and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and this whole household. He's such a wicked man, no one can even talk to him. What a, what a great commentary on Nabal. He's such a wicked guy, we can't even talk to him. But we're doomed. He insulted David. He ticked off the guys like, we're doomed. Like, it's coming and we're in the middle of it. Abigail, maybe think it over. Maybe there's something you can do. Because they know that she's this intelligent, well-put-together woman. Verse 16. It says, Abigail acted quickly. She jumps right to you, right? She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seals of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them onto the donkeys. That was like, that was like some quick catering right there, right? And she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal, not because she was wicked, but because he was. She couldn't talk to him. It says, as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her and she met them. And David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing, he paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all that belonged to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, hey, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention to my Lord, that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men that you had sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as surely as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming you be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. 
But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. The Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel. My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. A lot just happened there, right? A lot just happened there. Abigail grabs the goods. She runs out to meet David. Somewhere in the process of running out there, David and his guys are coming down the ravine, bent on revenge. They've been insulted. They've been affronted. And they're going to take care of it. David is like a maniac right now. And Abigail, this beautiful, intelligent woman, goes with this donkey and this stuff, and she sees him coming, and she gets off, and she gets down before him, and she says, David, David, just listen to me for a minute. And the cool part is that David does. Like, we'll see that more in a second. And she, she lays out this plea, but she starts by saying, David, don't focus on my husband, the fool. Like, his name literally means fool. Don't focus on my husband, the idiot. His name means idiot. Don't focus on the fool. Hey, for a second, if we could just pause the story, because that word fool is, is interesting. We hear it and maybe we think of like a, a stupid person or maybe we think of a, fr- a person who doesn't have like full uh, mental capacity or maybe we think of someone who's just ignorant or doesn't know something. And that, that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word fool. In, in Psalm 14 verse 1, this is what it says. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It defines the fool for us. It's the person that in their core, they, just, they simply say, there's no God. <laughs> there's no God. What's interesting about this psalm and the way it defines fool is the, the words there is is not part of that original language stuff because it doesn't really exist in the language. So really that psalm most literally reads, the fool says in his heart, no God. The other interesting thing about language is that that, that Hebrew doesn't use punctuation. And so we're left when we translate and interpret this to understand kind of maybe where we're putting punctuation and what we're understanding. So it could simply mean the fool says in his heart, no God. The fool is someone who says there is no God. Or it's, it's very possible that if we add one comma, it reads like this. The fool says in his heart, no, God, no. I, I don't know. Both are adequate readings. And it's just interesting because as we define the word fool, and as Abigail is talking to David about her foolish husband, we get this picture of who Nabal is. A guy that either says, there's no God. I can do whatever I want. I don't care who I insult. Or it could be a guy that simply says no to God. And I, th- I think that the, the sad part of this is that I play both of these roles way too often. You know, I know God exists. I, I, I know God. I, I have this relationship with him. And yet sometimes the way I act or the way I live, it's almost like I'm saying there's no God. And sometimes I play the other part. I put in a comma and I, and I simply say no to God, which is really, really dumb at 42 years old and walking with God for, for a number of years because I know when I tell him no, I think he just shakes his head and laughs at me. <laughs> okay, Chris. Because then it gets fill in the blank, right? More difficult, God's just going to move. I miss a blessing that he had for me. But I play both of these roles of the fool so often. In our story, David uh, is, is, is in between this, this, this fool, he's coming up against this fool named Nabal. And, and Abigail, this beautiful, intelligent woman, places herself so brave between the fool and between David. 
And so she, she stops and she says, David, listen, don't pay attention to my husband, the fool, this isn't worth it. And she lays out some reasons why this isn't worth David's time. And I just want you to see those. If you're using the app, there's some fill-ins for this. You'll see them pop up behind me. But she lays out four reasons why David needs to rethink this. He needs to recalibrate his focus. In verse uh, 24, she says this, uh, she says, hear what your servant has to say. His name means fool. We jumped down to verse 26. He sa- she, she says, so far God has kept you from bloodshed and avenging yourself with your own hands. She says simply this, God has kept you from revenge. David, all that bad stuff that's happened to you, all that stuff with Saul, all the stuff with getting kicked out of the kingdom, all that stuff with being anointed uh, king but then not getting to live that out, you hiding in the desert, all these, these disgruntled, diseased, depressed guys coming and being with you, all this stuff, you've never taken revenge. You had an opportunity when Saul threw, threw spears at you to pull them back out of the wall and throw them back. You had an opportunity when Saul was in the cave and you were in the cave, you could have gotten it. You've never done it, David. You've never taken revenge. Don't do it now. It's beneath you. You're better than this. God has chosen you for so much more than taking revenge. She says, don't do it, David. Don't take revenge. We jump down to verse uh, 28, and, and she says this about him. She says, the Lord of God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. You fight God's battles. Big battles. Righteous battles. David, the purpose that God has chosen you for is for so much more than dealing with this fool. This guy is a fool, David. You are so much bigger than this and so much better than this and your purpose is so much larger than this. Don't sink to that level. Don't sink to that level. Did, did, you, did you catch it? David, David, when he gets, straps his sword on and starts heading for Nabal, the, the account tells us in verse 21 that David had just said this before he meets up with Abigail. He says, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. I will get that guy. David's talking to himself. He's riding his horse or however he's getting there and he's just dwelling on this in his head. His focus is solely on Nabal and the insult. And he's like, that guy, man, all that work that I did, it's nothing. Like I, I got sunburned for him. I fought off bandits for him. I did all this stuff as amounted to nothing. That guy isn't in it. I'm gonna show that guy. David's talking to himself. Have you ever done that? Driving in your car and there's that person, that, that person that's done something to you, probably legitimate, and they're, they're, they're out of line, and you got it in your head, and, and you're driving, and you're having a conversation with them in your head in the car. Am I the only one that does that? Are we? I'm the only one that does that. Man, this is like, this is like my confessional, and this is great. Thanks for being here with me this morning. Those conversations where they, they're like in our brain. My, my friend Neil, he, he says it like this. He uses the phrase, um, don't let them rent space in your head. I love that phrase. Don't let him rent space in your head. And David is letting Nabal a full rent space in his head. David is angry and is getting himself more and more angry. If you have those car conversations or bathroom mirror conversations or bathroom conversations, wherever it is for you, you get yourself more and more and more angry, right? And you want more and more and more revenge and justice and you're going to come in and you're going to show this. And that's where David David is in verse 21, and Abigail says, don't do this, David, you're, you're better than this. Don't, don't take revenge, like you fight God's battles. And the third thing she says is kind of poetic. She shifts into an analogy that David would have understood. In verse 29, she says that um, even though uh, people are pursuing you like Saul, uh, the life of you, your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. 
She's employing this analogy that David would have got because David was a shepherd and this was a shepherd thing. Like, like this, the shepherds would carry two pouches, one on each hip. One pouch they'd refer to as like the pouch of the, the living or the, pou- or the bundle of the living. It's where they'd store like their food and maybe water and like medicine or whatever, like valuable stuff, stuff they needed to stay alive, but they'd put it in this pouch over here. And then, and then in the other pouch, they'd refer to it as like the other pouch or, or the pouch of death or however they referred to it. But in there, they would just put rocks, just common rocks they'd pick up along the way that they would use at some point to like kill, you know, lions and tigers and bears or sometimes Goliaths, right? Giants. And so they had these two pouches. And she says to David, 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 God has put you in his pouch of the living. Your value is so high to him. It's immeasurable. Like you are securely in this place. And then she says in those enemies, who, who Nabal is one right now, they're like in this other pouch. They're just going to be discarded. They're just rocks, <laughs> nothing more. Like she uses this language that would have really meant something to David and says, you are valuable, bound securely in the pouch of the living. And then the last thing she says to him in verse 31, she says, uh, David, you don't want to do this because you will not have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. She says, you don't want this on your conscience forever. You go and you destroy Nabal and you show him. And David at this point has worked himself up to a frenzy. It's not just Nabal that's going down, it's every male in the house. I'm killing all of them. Shock and awe. And Abigail, standing there, kneeling there on the dirt, says, David, you don't want this on your conscience forever. Revenge isn't in your, your wheelhouse. It's not who you're designed to be. You're better than this. You fight God's battles. Why are, you, why are you spending so much energy laying a full rent space in your head? What are you thinking? God has you where he wants you. Don't, don't become something else. Like You don't want this on your conscience forever. Here's the beautiful part. Verse 32 says, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. Immediately he recognizes God's voice. Immediately he recognizes God protecting him through the voice and character of Abigail. He says, may you, Abigail, be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, uh, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. And David accepted from her hand what she had brought, all those loaves and sheep and stuff, and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. The whole thing starts with Abigail saying, David, hear me. It ends with David going, Abigail, I, I have heard you. <laughs> Thank you. See, see we, love, we love our heroes. You know, we've liked David up till this point because he's a hero. He like, always makes the right decision. He always does the right thing. He does the good stuff. And we're like, yeah, David. And sometimes a guy like me, I look at that and I go, I could never be like David. <laughs> and then we get a story like this where David, in his insanity, as he becomes a maniac, enraged, focused on the fool, starts driving towards that end, and David is going to lose his mind. It takes somebody who is beautiful, intelligent, to stand in his way and say, you're smarter and better than this. And I think, oh, the idiot? I can relate to that. I mean, okay, I get that. And David, the redeeming thing in this entire event is David saying, I've heard you. In a culture that didn't put a lot of credibility on women. In a culture that didn't value females highly, David listens and he hears and he stops his course of action and he turns the other way. Here's the saddest part. I think the saddest part of the story, verse 36. 
says, when Abigail went to Nabal, that's her fool of a husband, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. That's a, that's a winner, right? So she told him nothing at all until daybreak because she couldn't. Right? Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all the things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. She can't tell him because he's drunk, just living life like nothing matters. So she goes home and she's such an intelligent person. She climbs into bed. He wakes up in the morning and coming off of his bender as he's sobering up or whatever, she says, Nabal, I just want you to know that your life was spared last night. I met David, I gave him some, and, and, and 400 guys were going to come and slaughter you and all the men here. And, and Nabal hears that. And he's so foolish. Like he never thought anything would happen. He hears that. It's like he just has this heart attack. Ah! Goes into something and 10 days later, he dies completely. So there's the story. There's, there's the event. What do we pull out of this? What do we look at? What do we see? What's one thing? And, and, and I think this is the one thing. If we walk out of here thinking something together, this is the one key element that I think helps us live out our stories that we see, at least I see, in this event with David and Nabal and Abigail. It's simply this. We've got to set our focus on God. And in this story, the opposite of that is setting your focus on the fool. We've got to set our focus on God. There are lots of fools in our lives. Sometimes the fool isn't a person, it's a thing. And, 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 it, and it's embarrassing how frustrated I get when the internet doesn't work. And that's my focus, and I'm yelling at it and naming it things. What a foolish thing to do. That becomes my focus. And sometimes the fool is a literal fool. It's a person who's offended you and hurt you and said something that's out of line or accused you of something or called your character into question or done whatever the fool does and I let them rent space in my head and my focus is no longer on God. It's absolutely on this little fool. And my friend Neil always plays in the back of my head, Chris, don't let him rent space in your head. Chris, don't let him rent space in your head. Chris, don't let him rent space in your head. We need to put our focus on God and sometimes... It requires a beautiful, intelligent friend to help us do that. A, a couple months ago, uh, Emily and I, my wife and I, were hosting a um, parent, uh, grace-based parenting group, one of our connecting groups here, and I got to spend a little more time with a friend of mine named Chris Hinson, uh, and Chris told a story there that's been in my head for the last couple of months, and as I was kind of putting this together this week, I was thinking, man, I want you to hear this story, and I was thinking I could tell you the story, but it, 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 it's goofy coming from me because it's Chris's story. So I asked Chris Hinson if he would just come on up and share uh, the story this morning. Uh, we'll call it Voice from the Corner, but, but he'll explain it. Uh, I don't want to give it away too much, but Chris, uh, back in the day, was, uh, is, was, was a cage fighter, which I know is hard to believe because he's so small and um, <laughs> a tiny guy. Anyways, and, uh, anyways he, he was telling this story about listening to voices. I, I'll let you tell it, man. Listening to voices. Got me looking crazy up here. Um, <laughs> I had a fight. Oh, I had a fight, and it, it really stands out because it, it, it's really in line with this sermon. And... Uh, I was in the cage, and I was trading hands with this guy, and he got into my head. Uh, he, was, he was real arrogant. He, he talked trash, you know, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, you're going to regret that. And uh, God gave me a lot of power in his right hand, and I wanted to show him just how much power God gave me in his right hand. And uh, I hunted him, and I 
completely ignored everything that my corner guys were telling me. Everything. I just wanted to land that right hand. That's all I gave any cares about. And basically, I ended up getting knocked out. Long story short. I throw the right hand and I pull it back and I pull it back low. And I wouldn't cover my face. And after I got up, and let me tell you, I'd never been knocked out before before this. So everything flashed white, everything rang, rang. There was a big ring, like microphone feedback, and something slapped me in the back. Like a, a, a big wooden panel just slapped me in the back, and I couldn't see anything. And what it was is my back slapped the ground. And I'm, I'm looking, I want to see, and I, when I finally came to, the ref waved off the fight. And it's funny because I watched the, uh, I watched the video of it later that night, and it was clear as day. I wasn't protecting my chin, and I didn't even know it. And my cornermen were yelling to me, cover your chin, cover your chin when you throw the right. And I didn't listen to that voice in the corner, and I paid for it. I paid for it for real. And I don't like telling this story because I just got you know, knocked out <laughs> in front of all of you guys. But, <laughs> but it was the only time, so that's okay. Right? But, yeah, it, I mean, if, it, if, if it's for God's glory, then that's what it's for. So. Chris, thanks for sharing that story. You know, as, yeah, there, give him a hand. As he's talking about that, that voice from the corner, I, I just, I'm picturing Chris in a ring and, and, the, vo- and, and the corner just, just telling him what to do and, and Chris just not hearing it. And I think, man, that sounds like David. You know, thank God David at some point shifted and, and was able to hear this woman who was saying, you're better than this. Like, your, your life is more than this. Like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And he's able to adjust. Well, let, let me finish this story here because I, I want you to know how the whole tale ends uh, so we're, we're not left wondering. And it's, um, it's interesting to me. I, I think it's romantic, but ladies, you tell me later if it's romantic. I don't, but I think, but I don't, I'm scared to go there. So anyways, this is what it says. Um, after uh, Nabal dies, uh, and it's been some time, verse 39. It says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be the Lord who upheld my case against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. David is thankful that God's defended him. It says, then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. And his servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, hey, David has sent us to you to take you home to become his wife. And she bowed down her face to the ground and said, I'm your servant. I'm ready to serve you and wash feet of my Lord's servant. Abigail quickly got on a donkey. So she said, it must have been a cool thing. She was excited about it. Quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. Each week we've talked about the importance of these life symbols. Like David is in the cave with Saul and he cuts off that piece of robe and I was wondering if David kept that little chunk of robe forever and just kind of looked at it. Every time he saw it, he remembered, like, you know, I got to see other people through Jesus' eyes. I can't just stick looking at him with my eyes. I got to see people through Jesus' eyes. And we said maybe, maybe with uh, Goliath, we know that David took the armor and put it in his tent and I, and I got to think every day when he saw that armor, he was like, man, I, like, I got to have a God-sized imagination. Like, this is what God has done in my life. And, and David, maybe I'm just guessing, took a 
a spearhead off one of those spears that Saul kept throwing at him, and he kept it just to be reminded that he was picked for a purpose. And maybe, I don't know, maybe David kept the pot that Samuel had anointed him with to be the next future king, just being realized that he was hand-chosen by God. David collected, I think, these life symbols so he'd be reminded of all the things God could do and had done in his life. And in this situation, it's like David collects the ultimate life symbol. (laughs) He looks at Abigail and he says, will you marry me? And she says, yes. And he brings her home. And I got to think, every day when he woke up in the morning and rolled over and saw that beautiful, intelligent woman there, he thought, man, I got to remember to keep my focus on God and not on the fools around me. I think there's something cool to that. I want to make much out of the fact of needing to develop life symbols in our lives. Having things in places where we go, our car, our bathroom, our mirrors, our lunch boxes, whatever it might be, things that remind us of who God is and what he's done in our lives. Matter of fact, I would love us to become hoarders of life symbols. Right? I would love it if the art in our home was art that were life symbols, art that mattered, not just simply because it's beautiful, but because the sculpture or the painting or the drawing or the music or whatever it is reminds us of who God is and what he's done in our lives. I just think the importance of life symbols can't be underestimated. And the reality is David, I don't want to say collected Abigail, that just shot the romance down, right? But David saw the value in having this reminder next to him all the time. And so he asks her, to marry him. That's the end of that story. And I know we look at that and we go, oh, that's a nice story. And that was a real old time story when they wore sandals and had swords and stuff. And that doesn't apply to us today at all. But I think it absolutely applies today. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, this is how our friend in Ephesians 5 writes the same concept. He says this, he says, follow God's example. Follow God's example. Set your focus on God. Follow him. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Like, follow God, focus God, walk the same way that Jesus walks. Like, like I don't know a lot about uh, single track mountain biking, but I do know that when you do that, you want to focus on where you want to go and not the obstacles in your way. Because the moment that you look at that, that, that tree branch that you don't want to hit, that's what you hit. I know even less about dealing with black ice in Michigan, but I, I've read that when you're hitting black ice, you want to look at where you want to go, not all the guardrails you're trying to avoid. There's some analogy to there with this. That, that Ephesians 5 talks about setting our focus on God because that's where we want to go. And in this case, not on the fool around us whether it's a person or an object or an event, like we set our focus on God, not the fool around us. Verse 15 in Ephesians 5, this is how it goes on. It says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. I guess the opposite of fools. Like, like, don't be a fool. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It goes on in verse 18. It says, be filled with the Spirit. You want to know what God's will is? You want to know what it looks like to be wise and not a fool? You want to know what God hopes for me and for you? Be filled with him. That's it. We wake up in the morning sometimes and we're like, man, what does God want today? We got the answer. Be filled with him. Like, does he want you to go to this store or that store, take this job or that job, have this many kids or this many kids? I don't, I don't know. 
I don't know. We'll have fun figuring that out together. But I know his overarching will for my life and for your life is to be filled with him. He says, he says follow me. Be filled with me. This whole concept, this whole concept today comes down to the phrase, set our focus on God. So as we end the series, how do we put all this together? This is how I put it together. If you're using the app, here's some fill-ins for you. It looks like this. We've got to recognize that we were chosen by God for a purpose. You've got to recognize that you were chosen by God for a purpose. And when you can wrap your head around that reality that you, you, <laughs> you were chosen by God for a purpose, then I think this is how we live out that story. Number one, we've got to cultivate a God-sized imagination. Not a Goliath size, not a giant size. We can't let our imaginations get captured by anything less than a God who can do way more than you could even imagine. We've got to cultivate a God-sized imagination. Number two, we've got to see others the way Jesus sees them. It's not good enough to just look through my own eyes at the people around me. We've got to see others the way that Jesus sees them. And the last one is set your focus on God, not on the fool. We wanted to finish this morning. I asked Chris if he would just finish our service for us. Uh, he's, he's into things that I'm, I'm not so much into. Uh, he's written some rap and some spoken word poetry. I just asked him if he'd come up and just kind of close our service today, just uh, sharing a little bit with you from, um, from a rap. Come on up, Chris. Faster. You're going to want that, huh? Yeah. Sorry, buddy. I could use it. I'm Thank roaming you. around. Thank you, North Point. Um, God fought all of our battles for us on the cross. Um, he won all of our battles for us way back then on the cross. Every battle we'll face in the future is already won from the cross. Anything you're going through now, he's already taken care of it. He's an eternal God. From the past, the future, and the present tense, it's all the same grace as heaven sent. He bailed us out of our sins and destroyed the evidence. Glory. Because he named us in his story. The battle's already won, so our future is his story. He transformed me, restored me to a better me. He's all there is, all there was. And all that there will ever be. He set me free. That day back on the cross with the mercy and the, the directions that he gave when I was lost, I forgot about him, turned from him. Lost faith out there on my own in the streets, a lost case. But he called my name and said, soldier about face, turn my life around. And he calmed the earthquake, reached out his loving hand and wiped the tears from my face. Said, wait, I'm coming back. I go to prepare you a place. Now I can look the devil in his eye and tell him he better move. Telling me better move. A battle with the king, it ain't one that you want to choose. 
If God is for me, then what do I have to prove and who can be against me? How could I ever lose? I'm ducking everything he swung, sticking out my tongue, moving forward with the sword of the spirit. I'll never run. Satan, you picked the wrong fight tonight with the wrong one. Imagine the wrath of God if you slaughtered his own son. No pun. This story's not even about me. This is the day the Lord made for you. Give him praise and thanks is what you're made to do. Take a walk in your neighbor's shoes. What he say is true. You were bought with a price. His blood paid for you. I serve a savior who gave his life to make me new. The sunrise every morning reminding us we made it through. Because weeping may endure for a night, but the pain gets chased off in the morning light. I'm refurbished, started from the bottom and resurfaced. Born again, rebirthed and given purpose. My glorious, magnificent king, maker of all dreams, creator of all things. His language ain't universal, his language is universes. He's speaking into existence. I speak it into these verses. And we're fresh because he refreshed us, ascended into heaven, but his spirit never left us. God bless you, North Point. Thank you. Amen, Chris. Hey, North Point, we, um, we don't have anything else to say. We just want to say have a great week, and uh, if we don't see you before next week, have an awesome one. Thanks.